Well, this week, welcome to machine learning. Um, this week I worked on logistics regression problem uh, using banking for predictions to predict um, whether a campaign would result in uh, a certain demographic of potential customers and whether they would open up a account. And they had, oh, I can't remember how many features, but it was less than 20 features. And most of them really didn't contribute to the um, determination whether prediction whether or not a user would open an account but there was one factor one feature that did and it was really kind of amazing to watch that how that feature affected the uh, system so I started with just one feature at a time and uh, instead of you know looking at a lasso and trying to figure out the most important feature uh, but then you know I could uh, I've done lasso and ridge later to uh, to do my validation but lasso particularly to find out what the most important feature was uh but anyway i just kind of uh, did it the old-fashioned way since i didn't have that many features i just wanted to see which one would come online and that was the consumer price index and i found that very fascinating that uh it's all about the economy, you know, it's, uh, it's about, you know, whether or not inflation is, is rising or, or not rising. So in, if there, um, if it's easy money or credit is available, then, uh, what does that correlate to in terms of the consumer price index? So what the consumer price index is, is it's a, an index that uh, measures what you can buy for a basket of, uh, what, what you can buy for a, a certain amount of money in a basket of goods. Um, and so the, it, it, uh, it and, and so that's a, just kind of an indicator of how inflation is, is running. So in a strong economy, if you have a strong economy and inflation is moderate, uh, then you still can buy that basket of goods because your wages are increasing. Uh, which is, consumer price index is different from your purchase power parity. Purchase power parity looks at your currency and uh, looks at the strength and weakness of a currency where consumer price index is just looking at you know uh, the how the how the consumers purchasing power is is looking at it. so one is kind of more towards businesses and the other is towards consumers so if consumers are not purchasing, then that means that, uh, you know, the economy is, is slowing down. Uh, and
and uh, people are afraid and they're saving money. And so <clears throat> they're not going to be opening banking accounts. They're not going to be borrowing money. They're not going to be improving, doing capital improvements on their properties. And it seems to me, uh, uh, so so what I did is I, I put that into a logistics regression and uh, then I, I plotted out my false positive against my true positives and uh, in the ROC curve and it, it looked uh, it looked pretty good it wasn't perfect but it, it was uh, fairly good then I'd used my log loss which is uh, uh, log loss tells you um, if you have a low log loss that means you're getting a lot of corrections uh, you're getting a lot of correct predictions and uh, it was about 0.3 and then um, I did a uh, score validation and said that the logistics regression algorithm was about 88% accurate. Everything looked good. So then I thought, well, okay, let's see how uh, Keras does. So then I took, uh, I had to convert my uh, data frame into Arrays, but basically, I did convert it into arrays for each one of the columns. So uh, you can use a function called uh, to numpy, numpy, and it will uh, create a, a, a array of arrays. And, and then I was able to uh, plot that out um, to see how data was distributed um, my classifier and then uh, then I, I was I set up my Keras with uh, six inputs with a hidden layer of six so I was using six features so I did an input layer of six created my model as a sequential and then I added another dense layer another hidden layer of six and then my output um, was one and the activation functions were uh, RELU and the output function was sigmoid my optimizer was uh, Adam and then I uh, and then I took my I had uh, split my data frame up into uh, train test split I used 30%, so I reserved 30% for testing. And then I passed my uh, X train and Y train into the system on the on the fit. And then did the predictions and stored that. And then when I got the predictions back, I converted those predictions into a yes and no column and did my count. And it was really interesting because, uh, oh, and then also one other thing I did was normalize my data because I was noticing that the neural net was having a real real problem with trying to get the predictions right. And 
just wasn't getting any results that I thought were correct. And so um, I read a couple articles on the internet that talked about how to normalize and scale it to reduce down, get everything in a normal range of zero to one. And then I fed that in the network and then I got a, uh, I got like uh, out of, I think there was uh, 36,000 samples that they were using. And I got a, the neural net to predict um, a, a certain ratio, like it was 18,000 to 600 or something like this. So 600 or 700 yeses to 18,000 no's. And what was interesting to me was how, it didn't say how long this uh, survey was running, how long the campaign was running, but suppose that it was just one year and uh, they blitzed uh, you know, the credit card or account openings for that one year. And there was 18,000 uh, rejections, but there was 700 or so yeses. And what I, what I realized is that the, when I compared the accuracy of the Keras network, it was about 88%, and I compared logistic regression was 88%, I, th I thought myself, wow, you know, it's pretty close. And no wonder logistic regression is the most popular algorithm. It, it, it gives you a fairly accurate prediction with very little setup. You didn't have to figure out your network players. You didn't have to figure out, um, you know, a lot of the the features. And I did have to uh, uh, reduce the features down into like dummies where you split it apart. And uh, Keras has a really cool function called as type. So you put it on your data frame column and you do as type, and then one of them, one feet as type is uh, categorical or category. And that'll that'll convert it into different categories. And so I did that, got everything uh, vectorized, so uh, converted, had a little uh, function that converted yes, no into um, categories. Actually, I used the as type on that one also. Originally, I did, thought I had to use create a function to convert it, and it didn't work quite so well, so I, I went back and I just used the as type, and whoops, they didn't have a problem. So then I uh, uh, got done with that, and I was really pleased. I put it up on my GitHub, so you can go out to my GitHub and take a look at uh, that sample. I'll put a little wiki note on that, and uh, and you can just run it. Uh, Jupiter Notes or Jupiter Labs. Uh, oh wait, Jupiter Notes. And that's where I start thinking that you know there's a possibility to create a business if if most of the information that you're doing with marketing or. Uh, things that you want to predict a yes no like a binary classification are related to business whether it's a go or no go uh, it really looks like either logistic regression or Keras can be used to make those predictions 
I think where the Karras would uh, probably have maybe some advantage over logistic regression is if we had like, say like, instead of uh, six, six features, you took um, a thousand features. So you, you normalize your data out, create a, you know, these massive flat, flat tables, and then you um, vectorize all of the columns and you, there, uh, in fact, it's really quite easy to vectorize all the columns because what you can do is you can build a function and then you can get from the data frame, you can get all the column names and uh, just uh, do an as type dot category on every column. So that'll vectorize all the columns. And, uh, and then um, just do a count. You can do a length count on the number of columns and that will tell you your input layer. And then the, the trick would then be you then focus on, on uh, your, your number of density, dense layers that you want to create depending on the number of features that you want to try to capture. So you could have a, a shallow network or you could have a deep network. And um, you could work on different, you could try different optimizers depending on, on the um, type of network. So uh, you, you might use uh, stochastic gradient descent. SGD as an optimizer, or you could use Atom, that's the popular one for categories. But there are other optimizers that you might try. And, uh, and then you could feed that into your, uh, you can feed data into your, your Keras network. And then you could get some results. So, it seems like it's not that you're not that far away from getting value in business using Keras is what I've tried to argue. Uh, because in the bottom line, you want to get something that's actionable. Now, one of the things that uh, I've said in the past that I think is is critical uh, as you're thinking about using the, you know, the neural nets to make predictions is that uh, you first do find your standard deviations. Find what your means are. Uh, get, a, get, a, get a benchmark average. So if your predictions are like very far away from the mean, uh, then you probably either have well, I'm not sure what that would mean. I'd have to think about it. But you, you would have, let's say like your operating predictions need to fall within two standard deviations, which is, I think would be a reasonable, a reasonable rule that you have a plus or minus two standard deviations on your predictions. And, uh, uh, so, in the if uh, you know, in the case like if you're doing some sort of linear regression and you're predicting, you know, where the points should fall, 
relationship to the linear regression line. But I would say two standards of deviation should be the upper and lower bound. And that's a you know, conservative value. So if the, if the, if the neural net predicted uh, something outside those two standard deviations, that should be an alert and uh, you, know, you want to review that, make sure that uh, something didn't malfunction there. But neural nets are pretty good at finding signal. I, I've uh, done tests on uh, functions, trigonometry functions, sine, cosine, tangent, and we're able to correctly predict uh, on the curve. Uh, I haven't tried uh, polynomial fit. That's a that's one that I, I should actually try because I've done some curve fitting with uh, uh, OLS. And uh, when I was doing, if you look at my some of my COVID work, uh, I was doing some curve fitting on that to to make a prediction on whether or not the death counts were increasing or decreasing based on a uh, boosting algorithm that was looking at uh, a line, a linear line. So I did a curve fit and then I did a linear line using the boost. And and uh, getting a general direction, which way you know things were going, whether the health system was reducing down the death count, people were getting better testing in what areas, and you know, looking at the occurrences, and then looking at the trend counting so that you know it's basically a lot like stock prediction I guess I could have easily put this into a stock market and then predicted which way the price movement was going uh, based on that and so you know that's probably something if I had easier access to stock prices I could have done and then made recommendations each day whether or not the trend was maybe in the last 10 day trend was uh, to buy or to sell that's what I was looking for because I want to see, you know, if, if uh, doing my independent research to, to uh, determine what was going on with COVID. And, uh, you know, and that, that, that brings me to another point uh, that's, that's very important is that companies now are publishing lots of data. Uh, governments, city governments, are publishing lots of data that you can either access through API or you can uh, just download through CSV. And what I was doing was just grabbing the CSV and analyzing from the New York Times their CSV uh, as it was tracking the COVID day by day. Now, what I would like to do, propose, is that I could do the same thing for business using um, three classifiers, logistic regression, Keras, which these, these can uh, be also linear or classifier. So linear would describe how many, how much, how frequent, and classifier would define, predict uh, which one. And then the third, third thing, component I would add is reinforcement learning. I think that's the new trend. The reinforcement learning uh, is just very good because it's unsupervised. It ha 
has goals and policies that you set up for rewards or punishment. And through time, it learns uh, how to maximize rewards. So it's, you know, you can improve efficiency. And they're, they're applying reinforcement learning to layout and design, thermodynamics, solar, uh, where I saw one where they improved solar efficiency by having the reinforcement learning, adjusting the solar panels through actuators that are keeping it lined up in the sun. You could have done that with a, a simple voltage where you have, just put a voltmeter where it, on two sides of the panel, top and bottom or left and right, and, uh, or you could have them all four corners. And then it measures the voltage that's being generated from solar from those four corners. And then the neural net uh, tracks that and it gets rewarded for having the most voltage. So it'll find the, it'll find the point where it's getting the most voltage and then that becomes optimized solution in reinforcement learning. Lots of different uh, possible applications for reinforcement learning that way. I think it, you could even uh, teach a reinforcement learning algorithm how to fly by giving it uh, uh, different rewards, you know, how to avoid turbulence maybe. I, I, that might be an interesting one because that's a big problem in, when you're flying is uh, running into turbulence. So, you know, do you go higher or lower? What's this algorithm for doing that? Uh, you can see in Morpher how RL could be valuable where it's looking at complex war scenario and you know things are unfolding in combat and it's making uh, automated decisions on where to deploy troops or where to move resources, things that like of that nature. So you can simulate it. You can learn through simulation and then be applied in applications. There's lots of uh, things that reinforcement learning can do. Now, in, in business, I would say the reinforcement learning uh, is valuable in the sense that uh, it may be able to optimize like on uh, credit collection, to look at uh, maybe goals on finding areas that need uh, to be collected, where money needs to be collected, and uh, looks for opportunities for billing. You can look for opportunities in the system for uh, improving uh, purchasing, you know, like selling uh, equipment inventory that's no longer being used, salvaging that, finding uh, reorder points. Maybe that's the incentive is to maximize and optimize your reorder points so that you have just-in-time equipment. You're not having to, to work uh, all the time. Let the system do the automated purchasing. Finding the, you know, putting out uh, quotes for putting out per, uh, information for quotes and then selecting based on different uh, features.
features selecting the best uh, best quote and then measuring the results of the automated purchasing so logistics could have a be a, a strong area for reinforcement learning I just think reinforcement learning is the new trend that's going to be valuable for business. Um, and, it, and it's basically no one's using it. It's, uh, it's really quite amazing. Most of the businesses are running off support vector machines. And, and that's because support vector machines are easy to set up. Uh, their boundaries can be quantifiable, you can create visuals of those support vector machines, and uh, uh, have reasonable confidence that your predictions are correct. So you can run a linear regression for your statistics, support vector machines for your classification. But I don't, I don't know if I I believe that support vector machines perform as well as logistic regression. That, that logistic regression seems to be more like a neural net. It follows the sigmoid function. Uh, it has thresholds. It has more continuous learning capabilities. So I, my inclination is to stay with logistic regression and uh, Keras and reinforcement learning. Because I think in many cases, you can take uh, different decisions that are being made by the logistics regression and feed that into your Keras because Keras can have multiple inputs and you can use Keras as kind of a routing algorithm. So it, it becomes this network of routes and then you can use reinforcement learning to optimize performance. So that using those three components, I think, could be the key to major breakthrough for business and business automation. And then what you're using, then what people are doing is they're measuring the controls. So you're doing more uh, statistical analysis of what the machine's doing. You're letting the machine make the decisions, making, getting the optimum configurations. And then you're you're having people uh, measuring the system performance, looking at uh, the effectiveness of the decisions, questioning whether or not certain decisions were really optimal, and then uh, you know working with the data scientists to correct correct for uh, anomalies. And then you're going to have some outliers where. Uh, there are special special cases or circumstances that are not efi necessarily efficient, but they are necessary. Not efficient, but necessary is what I say. And those cases then have to be manually handled. But the companies that are moving towards automation now are are going to be the companies that, that can survive disruption into the future. It's going to be more of a dependency on on this automation. You can see it already, as I work with data and I've been thinking about data. But you, there's a whole stage of setting up and identifying the key features.
that have to be analyzed. So getting your data from relational into an aggregated form that can be consumed by uh, Keras and logistics regression is going to be stage one. So you're going to you have to just get the warehouse set up, get the relationships discovered, collect additional data. And then stage two would be your feature engineering, uh, moving towards creating a, a, a list of features that you're, you're going to analyze. And then the four stages, setting up your production pipeline so that uh, uh, you can create, uh, you may have to create in Python, get a couple of Python programmers to create visuals of what's going on with the data flow ingestion and uh, predictions so you can see what the neural net's doing see what how it's routing things around and then you want to have a statistician to figure out your numbers uh, if uh, if the routing is occurring correctly with the Keras predictions are are uh, within acceptable operating parameters and then having uh, management visual systems so that they can understand you know how the automated decisions are affecting the bottom line and so those are those are critical things for uh, uh, the system to be able to to perform and do and so in a lot of ways it's like having an automated robotic manufacturing where you treat where you treat accounting or you treat financial planning uh, like a, a uh, like processes in a automated factory and uh, reduce down the amount of human inter intervention required to perform automated tasks they just set up the automated tasks through programming and uh, and then uh, provide controls and visual systems for analyzing the automation and th there's going to be manual steps you know unless you can figure out a way to make everything electronic so all uh, invoicing is electronic, all uh, POs are electronic, all quotes are electronic. You know, moving towards everything electronic or digital uh, will help in creating that automated, you know, CFO. So you could even have all your financial reporting done. Now, configuration is another issue because configuration uh, has to be driven off of the business. So you're going to have architects that are going to be working to set up you know, new business units, new companies that are being acquired. Uh, maybe your, your chart of account cost, costing structure has to be configured a certain way. But as far as routing and classifying, uh, it seems to me that you could build rules for determining where things should be uh, charged. And once you can get those rules uh, 
then the, the, then the system can route and create accounts receivables based on certain input parameters that might indicate that a, an account receivable should be generated, can do your job billing, and, and so there's you know a lot of data entry that's going on uh, but as you look at it, ERPs they're they're trying to move towards automation they're they're running batch processes there's having people stage those batch batch processes then they're kicking off these batch processes and they're running uh, you know they're running the, the data through the pipeline and so you know as you think about building an automated factory Accounting, ERP is attempting to do that. The, it's just not uh, thinking broad enough and applying more of the AI to the front end. And so, if you put more AI in the front end, then you can uh, and making good. It's making good decisions on the inputs then you, you really do get towards that fully automated system that I've been talking about. Anyway, that's my uh, proposition or thesis running is that, uh, that ERP will move to the next level with AI and through automating the, the front end and reducing down the amount of labor required to feed the ERP. Reduce the amount of labor required to feed, feed the ERP, you save lots of money. And, uh, and as software becomes uh, more universal, open source becomes more available, different uh, functions and features can be made more generic and uh, utilized as components. So processes feed metadata to those components like the robotic brain feeds uh, the metadata into the pipeline. The observer or subscribers are picked up notification that the metadata arrives. And then once they uh, analyze the metadata, they determine whether or not they can do something with it. Uh, and then if they do, you know, so for example, if, uh, if, you're, if you do a uh, accounts receivable, Maybe job billing generates a, a accounts receivable. There's a, a, there's a correlation then to job costing. So job costing kicks off. Job uh, and then once the receivable is generated, then the general ledger also receives notification uh, from metadata that the general ledger has completed its task and uh, it kicks off. And, generate creates a general ledger and uh, and then makes maybe makes an entry into cash flow or cash uh, cash management so you have cash management and then you might have uh, a transaction that kicks off in the customer ledger so there's a lot of different areas that in the system can be subscribed to this metadata and as this metadata moves down into the pipeline the processes that can do things with that metadata will do it, uh, and so the you know these processes become entities, and these entities can be constantly changing as more processes uh, 
are added and that that would have to come in the form of programming so featured programming unless the machine can start generating code on its own uh, I would say at this point you know the, to keep things deterministic that you would have programmers you know engineer it and then you would have these pipelines that are, are moving in the system so more of a real-time feel as metadata moves through the system, processes are run, and, uh, and then have some way of logging or tracking the flow or the notification um, of the processes and their effect on those processes, what they, what they did, and then having the feedback on system so you still maintain your constraints in the system ERP so your relational constraints still have to exist so there's that level of complexity because you don't want to have lots of data transacting but there's no uh, no accurate way to relate the data so you've got to have IDs and you have to either create surrogate keys or you have to have some sort of uh, constraint between those entities to maintain their relationship. Otherwise, you have fuzzy, fuzzy relationships, and then they have to, and those are are have only a certain level of confidence that the relationship can exist. But that's largely what business intelligence is faced with anyway. When they're looking at large systems, is trying to figure out. What is the relationship between the data? So, you know, you might have tables A, B, and C, but in order to establish the relationship, A goes to B and B goes to C, and now you have the relationship from A to C. So there's some logic in the set uh, sets to get from A to C, and, you know, maybe the computer tries all these different combinations looking pathways through the data and uh, originally I started uh, thinking that way and you know building uh, uh, self-generating code in the data and you know and I was able to take all the foreign forward keys and generate up all the fields I was getting what what happened was is I was able to navigate using uh, you know left joins and joints I was able to navigate and in fact I put everything in left join I was able to navigate the foreign constraints but the problem was is I got so many fields once I started connect figuring out what could connect to what tables you know, I used uh, you know I used uh, cursors and I used other tables to store the related tables you know I generated up these fields and then when you take uh, you know let's say you have 10 tables that relate it you could generate up you know a thousand columns and so it just it was just too much and even though it was nice because I could have these nice uh, packaged constraints then I thought well you know it's too hard to do it that way because you know you have these views and you can every possible combination was combined in these views 
and then you could figure out which views related to which views and basically create a tree structure is what I was thinking about. So uh, when you wanted to find data, you search down through uh, a tree and the tree then would tell you which, which views to assemble. So you just did your views two tables at a time and then and then uh, through the nodes in the, in the tree, then you would assemble uh, <clears throat> views together, so parent to child, and that would create then the, the parent join, and uh, and then you could you could have a pathway to your data through combining lots of tables together based on their constraints. But it it uh, you know it was to me in my mind seemed like the way to go for analyzing data uh, in, in big ERP systems with thousands of tables is that you could just build these massive tree structures that search through the data. But uh, anyway, I had the idea and built it partially, and I may come back to that using uh, Python. Um, but uh, once you have the data in there, you could you should be able to automate the feature discovery using Keras. And then when you get things that are useful in the data, you know, Keras needs to have a way to report back to you the things that are useful. And, um, and then it is possible you can see through, through careful planning to automate more of the routines um, and leverage more of what the machine can uh, discover.